The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. By now, you have no doubt heard the news. One of the most famous diplomats in American history and one of the most controversial has uh, passed away at the age of 100. Henry Kissinger, who served in the Nixon and Ford administrations as a national security advisor and as secretary of state, has uh, passed away at 100. And I thought it might behoove us to have a look at Henry Kissinger's legacy, because I can think of very few American statesmen of his age that came out of that era that uh, have such divided fans and detractors. There are a few, but nobody as passionate is on both sides of that issue as Kissinger. So I'm going to give you my take, but I'm going to invite you to weigh in on what you think Henry Kissinger's legacy is, whether it's positive, negative, or something in between. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. You know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting and very telling was about seven years ago, you remember there was a Democratic presidential debate going on between uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton had praised Henry Kissinger in the uh, previous debate, and she wrote about him in her book admiringly. And basically, Bernie Sanders, in order to create a contrast with where Hillary Clinton was, said, well, that's the difference between Hillary Clinton and myself, is I want nothing to do with Henry Kissinger. And he stated a few of the reasons why. So I'd be curious as to your view. My view is, and this is an aspect of my psyche and my personality and my analysis of everything that has changed over the years. When I was much younger, I kind of thought that there was – that the world was black and white. And I've come to see that very few people are all good or all bad. I have come to believe that most people fall somewhere in that shade of gray with, that they have a lot of good things about them. And a lot of bad things. Let's talk about Henry Kissinger and some of the things that I view as positive. This man was incredibly brilliant. He not only had an understanding and a grasp of American foreign policy and not just American foreign policy, but just foreign policy in general that was uh, without peer. I mean, he might have been the most knowledgeable person on foreign policy 
on the entire globe. In addition, there's a lot of people who have a lot of great book smarts, but he was also a brilliant strategist. And when I say he was a brilliant strategist, I don't know I necessarily only mean that he understood military strategy and foreign policy and how the pieces moved on a chessboard and how this country interacted with this country and how that might work to the United States' advantage. He did understand those things. But he was also a brilliant internal governmental strategist in a manner uh, very similar to Lyndon Johnson or uh, Dick Cheney or uh, John Bolton, to be honest. He was able to use and understand the bureaucracy to achieve power and to wield power. And people can have their disagreements with what he did with that power, but he was uh, absolutely absolutely skilled at understanding strategy. He's exactly the kind of person that you would want on your side if you're ever playing Stratego. He was also an immigrant. And really, the fact that he could be the Secretary of State and a trusted confidant of multiple presidents in both parties, even after he left government, I think really is a testament to the American dream that you could come here from anywhere and be the top of the heap. He couldn't have been president because of the Constitution, but he was in many ways more powerful than a president. When Nixon left, he didn't leave. And a lot of people don't realize that he actually started with Nelson Rockefeller. He was a foreign policy advisor and a policy advisor in general to Rockefeller. And then when it was clear that Nixon was going to be the nominee in 68, he jumped on board Team Nixon and stayed with Nixon uh, for the duration of that administration. As far as policy goals, I think the uh, the thing that you – there are a few things that I think he needs a lot of credit for. One is de-escalation with the Soviet Union. I covered this a little bit with Nicholas Meyer yesterday. In 1962 and throughout the 60s, there was very much a feeling that we could be headed towards nuclear war. And it was only the policy of detente – pursued by people like Richard Nixon and direct talks with the Soviet Union that allowed us to come off the ledge and allowed us to have these secret back channels where American diplomats could talk with Soviet diplomats to make sure that we didn't accidentally blow one another up. And Kissinger was a a critical part of that equation and a critical part in making sure that the United States Uh, engage with the Soviet Union, and then it set the stage for future treaties with the Soviet Union, including arms reductions and things of that nature. De-escalation with the Soviet Union is something I think he deserves a lot of credit for. He was also the brains with Richard Nixon on opening up China. Kissinger went with Nixon to Mao's communist China a country that we didn't even recognize. Remember, our China was Taiwan, the uh, a.k.a. Formosa. We didn't want to know China. We didn't want anything to do with China. But um, we, we might argue that the uh, Chinese and American economies are a little too coupled these days. But I think a country with a billion people, it makes sense to at least trade with them, to at least be able to sell them products, to at least have international relations. But for Kissinger and Nixon... There would be no relationship with China. Who knows where we'd be? You'd probably have a very angry, giant country of a billion people 
communist in nature, not enjoying American television or American movies or American fast food, probably very angry with us. And only Nixon, and by extension at Kissinger's behest, only Nixon could have done that. You know, I didn't get to get into this with Nicholas Meyer yesterday, and I wish I did because he actually wrote Star Trek VI. And Spock has a wonderful line in Star Trek VI where he says, only Nixon could go to China. And he's exactly right. Nixon, because of his work being against communism, uh, going all the way back to the his case, was the only person that could have met with uh, with Mao and toasted Mao and opened up relations with Mao's government. Because if any Democrat would have done it, or even a lot of Republicans, they would have been viewed as just soft on communism. They couldn't have gotten away with it. Because everyone knew that Nixon wasn't soft on communism and never had been, he was the only person that could do that. And Kissinger understood that. Obviously, what's very much in the news these days is um, what's going on with Israel. And uh, under the Nixon administration and to some extent the Ford administration, Kissinger played a critical role in strengthening and expanding the ties that Israel had with its Arab neighbors. Now, imagine if that hadn't happened. I don't think you would have seen the Camp David Accords, which I, I talked about with Jonathan Alter when we spoke about the Carter, Carter presidency. And Egypt, for instance, was probably the only country in the Middle East that had a military that could have, at least in the 70s, could have potentially bested Israel. I'm not saying they would have, but it was the only army in the region that could have bested Israel. So the fact that Kissinger played such a critical role in expanding ties between Israel and their Arab neighbors is so important. Uh, additionally, and there's one thing that um, um, I'll mention last that took place during the 70s because it really dovetails well with what I feel are his greatest failures. But the fact that Kissinger has led um, such a long life has led him to weigh in on every single foreign policy question over the course of the last 50 years. And you look at his leadership and if you look at his statesmanship and the things that he wrote and the things that he said publicly about um, Russia, China, and you look at all of the idiotic moves our current diplomats have made and other diplomats, especially in the Bush and uh, Biden and Obama administrations, and you really see what a sane man he was. And in some ways, dead, he might be better positioned to conduct diplomatic engagement with Russia and China than anyone in the current U.S. government. And if you look at what he said over the last 10, 15, 20 years, he so often proved right. He became this relatively sane counterweight to people on the right like George Bush and people on the left like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama that wanted to intervene everywhere. In 2014, he warned that Ukraine must not join NATO. He also said that demonization of Putin is not a policy. It's an alibi for the absence of one. And if you look at why we're cradling closer and closer to nuclear war these days, God forbid, it's because we've ignored so many of the things that Kissinger warned us about when it came to Russia. Additionally, uh, what one of the things that he said was his 
fine, finest achievement and the, his proudest achievement, he got the Nobel Peace Prize. He shared it with his counterpart from uh, Vietnam or North Vietnam, but he got the Nobel Peace Prize for helping bring about an end to the Vietnam War back in 1973. This is what uh, I, th- I think this is what he said. Nothing that has happened to me in public life has moved me more than this award. And um, you can certainly understand why. Now, they also gave the Nobel Peace Prize to Yasser Arafat. They also gave the Nobel Peace Prize to Barack Obama, who killed more people with drones than any Nobel Peace Prize winner that I'm aware of. But um, let's look at what he actually did in power. I'm not going to go so far as to call him a war, war criminal, as others have done. Although I think if you look at what the textbook definition of war criminal of war crimes are, he comes very close to fitting that um, definition. And but it's it's become such a politically loaded term that it immediately causes people to bristle. But he his conduct as part of the Vietnam War, I think, is totally inexcusable. And he lived to 100, God bless him. Unfortunately, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, innocent people, that never got to live to 100 because of Henry Kissinger. And the thing that gets talked about most with him is, deservedly so, this secret four-year bombing campaign in Cambodia that killed an untold number of civilians, literally too many to count. Despite the fact that Cambodia was a neutral nation, which the United States was not at war with at the time, and during his time in charge of American foreign policy, he also directed illegal arms sales to Pakistan as it carried out a brutal crackdown on the Bengali population. He supported the 1973 military coup that overthrew a democratically elected government in Chile. And his support for Pinochet in Chile resulted in all sorts of people being oppressed and dying. And he, unlike a lot of other diplomats of his day, including Robert McNamara, he never apologized for that. He wrote a dozen books and didn't do anything to offer one kernel of, well, we were wrong or I wish things had been done differently. He gave the go-ahead to Indonesia's 1975 invasion of East Timor. In fact, uh, Kissinger and Ford visited Indonesia, and they told the president, well, maybe at least wait until we leave the country and go back to the United States before you invade Timor, uh, East Timor. He backed Argentina's repressive military dictatorship as they launched this dirty war against dissenters and leftists. And his policies during the Ford administration fueled civil wars all over Africa, including in Angola. Even the most generous calculations suggest that the murderous regimes that Kissinger supported and the conflicts that they waged were responsible for not just millions of deaths, but millions of human rights abuses. So I think Kissinger's record is a very mixed bag. Um, I think he's done a lot of good, but I think he's done a lot of tremendous bad in his life. 
But I don't think you could name a more influential person on the world stage, which is why his name, when it was brought up in 2016 with Bernie Sanders and Henry Kissinger, excuse me, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, why it became such a flashpoint. The secretary and I have a very profound difference. In her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find it rather amazing because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. And in fact, Kissinger's actions in Cambodia created the instability for Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come in, who then butchered some three million innocent people, one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. So count me in as somebody who will not be listening to Henry Kissinger. I think everything Sanders said is right, but Hillary Clinton's retort was also right. His opening up China and his ongoing relationships uh, with the leaders of China is an incredibly useful relationship. She's right. Uh, This is one of those areas where I think they're both right and they're both wrong. Now, uh, I'd love to hear your view if you side more with Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders on the question of Henry Kissinger and what you think his legacy might be. Again, in my case, I think it's very mixed. And I think he benefited, one, by the fact that he lived so long and he could weigh in on so many different foreign policy issues. But I think he also benefited from all of the people being in diplomatic spheres over the last 23 years have been incredibly incompetent or, if they're not incompetent, destructive. Um, I'll let, we're going to have, talk to Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch in just a minute, and then I'll take your calls, 800-848-9222. He's been asked about that label of war criminal from time to time, though. And uh, I'll let uh, I'll let Kissinger have the last word in terms of whether he deserves that title of war criminal. From which they launched attacks. He's talking about uh, Cambodia and the carpet bombing of Cambodia and all these innocent people that were killed. From which they launched attacks into uh, uh, into Vietnam. Uh, and these divisions were put there in opposition to the uh, to the local to the to the Cambodian government. In fact, the Cambodian government told Chester Bowles, who was there as a representative of LBJ, that if we bombed those areas and didn't kill any Cambodians, that they uh, would close their eyes to it. The LBJ administration decided not to do this because they were already under pressure domestically and for other reasons that Tom Johnson may know uh, better than I do. But then uh, uh, the uh, when Nixon came in, uh, Nixon had already just before he assumed office, sent a message to the North Vietnamese that he was eager to resume negotiations. In the third week of the Nixon presidency, they started an offensive in which every week uh, 500, up to 500 Americans were killed. 
And many of these attacks, more than half of these attacks, came from the areas uh, that were occupied by those four divisions inside Cambodian territory. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. In any analysis of what's going on in the Middle East these days, and I'm not just talking about the Israel-Hamas war, but this could apply just as well to tensions with Iran. This could apply to tensions with countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and a lot of the questions that folks have about pseudo-alliances with countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The question becomes... What is Islam and what is its place in the world? Someone that has uh, frequently called out radical Islam for the last 20 years and been called every name in the book for it has been Robert Spencer, the director of Jihad Watch. Well, it turns out uh, he we're not only going to call upon his expertise and his opinions in what's happening in the Middle East these days, but he's got a new book out. And I'm embarrassed to say this was an aspect of world history that I knew very little until two days ago when I started reading this book. And uh, I am now inspired to learn a great deal more. The book is called Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization. Very pleased to be joined by the director of Jihad Watch and a man who's been a New York Times bestselling author, Robert Spencer. Robert, it's great to talk to you again. Frank, always good to talk to you. Thank you. For people who have not heard us speak before or may not be familiar with you, what is Jihad Watch? Jihad Watch is actually the only news site, at least that I know of, in the entire world that tracks jihad activity in the United States and around the world every day, day in and day out. Uh, We've been doing it for 20 years now, and we're busier than ever with everything since October 7th, and you can find us at jihadwatch, J-I-H-A-D, watch.org. 
I'm sure you're aware of this, and I'm sure you've been asked about this before, but when you type Jihad Watch into Google, on the left side, it, the first thing that comes up is your website. And the second thing that comes up on the right side is a description, a little fact box that says, Jihad Watch is an American far-right anti-Muslim conspiracy blog operated by Robert Spencer. In that sentence that I just read, as provided by Google, what it, what is inaccurate and how do you feel about the way that Jihad Watch is often characterized? Well, I guess it is a blog, but otherwise everything in that is false. Uh, we are not anti-Muslim. We're anti-Jihad terror, which we were told right after 9-11 repeatedly had nothing to do with actual Islam, and most Muslims rejected it, so they shouldn't think that we are anti-Muslim. Any Muslim who is against Jihad violence is welcome to stand with us and would be happy for that. Uh, we cover news. We don't cover conspiracy theories. We carefully document everything that we put up, and if it proves to be an inaccurate report, then we correct it or take it down as the circumstances warrant. Uh, what we have here is the weaponization of the information sphere on the Internet that uh, is very much skewed toward propaganda that serves the interests of the people who are putting it out but doesn't actually have anything to do with reality. One sign of that is the use of the term far right, which does it's supposed to make you think, oh, there must be they must be like Hitler or something like that. Uh, when actually we have seen that the jihadis, the pro Hamas folks that have come out in force since October seventh, uh, they are open in their admiration for Hitler and so it's uh something that's actually on the other side. But the idea is the use of the term far right is really designed just to make people think, oh, this is somebody that I shouldn't uh, shouldn't like, shouldn't trust, shouldn't follow. It's just a smear term that the establishment uses to discourage people from looking into dissident points of view. But we uh, are very careful, scrupulously accurate at Jihad Watch. All our sources are noted and marked. We show the uh, ways in which jihadis are acting in accord with Islamic teaching and telling you angles on the news you're not going to hear anywhere else, but they're 100 percent accurate. Well, it's interesting the last part that you said, uh, how you mention that a lot of what's going on is in accordance with Islamic teaching. You've said that a number of other folks have said that. Uh, so is the problem that the world is facing is it an Islam problem, or is it a radical militant Islam problem? Well, in a certain sense, it's both, because the radical militant Muslims are not all the Muslims, but the radical militant Muslims do have Islamic teachings that they can use and do use to justify their actions and to make recruits among peaceful Muslims. And so it ends up being the same thing, that you don't have all the Muslims on board but the ones who are have plenty of justification that they can point to, and that makes it a dangerous and difficult thing to deal with because the Muslims who reject it, they don't actually have a leg to stand on in terms of Islamic teaching. 
we're glad they reject it, but we can't pretend that they represent the truth of the religion or the, even the broad mainstream in it. Do you see a difference at all between uh, Sunni Islam and Shia Islam in terms of its impact on the West or something like the likelihood of terrorism in places like the United States? Well, the Sunnis are more involved with actual kind of terror attacks that we see like 9-11 and uh, October 7th and so on. On the other hand, the October 7th massacre in Israel was funded by the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is Shiite. And so <laughs> while there is de- de- deep dislike and distrust between the Sunnis and the Shia, at the same time, they hate each other. Uh, I mean, they hate the non-Muslims more. So there's actually a, a saying in Arabic that translates to my brother against my brother, but both of us against our cousins. <laughs> I've not heard that one, but it certainly seems apropos. Talking with Robert Spencer, his new book we're going to tell you about momentarily. It's called Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization. There are a lot of Muslim leaders around the world. Well, I should say there are at least some Muslim leaders around the world that have shown they're pretty serious about taking on uh, jihadists. You have uh, General Sisi in Egypt. You have people like King Abdullah in Jordan. These these are folks that are adherents to Islam, but do you give them high high marks for beating back the tide of militant Islam in their countries? Well, sure. I mean, Sisi has been tremendous in limiting the power of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is maybe the chief jihad group in the world today, even though it's not ordinarily thought of as a jihad group because it's happy to work through peaceful means, through elections and so on, doesn't usually just blow things up. But Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine, that's what it calls itself, and the Muslim Brotherhood was the uh, father of al-Qaeda and other jihad groups, and it's dedicated to imposing Islamic law around the world, which is what the jihad groups want to do as well. And so uh, I think it's, it's hard to make a distinction between the jihad groups and the Muslim Brotherhood. Sisi has limited the Muslim Brotherhood to a tremendous degree after they took power and ruled in Egypt for a year in 2012. Uh, the thing is, here again, as I said earlier, the people who are working against jihadis in the Islamic world do not generally have an Islamic argument to make. What Sisi is doing is limiting the power of political Islam in Egypt, and that earns him the reputation of being an apostate or a heretic, an infidel, and so on, among the Brotherhood and its allies. And so it's not as if he can say, oh, I represent a different understanding of Islam. He just doesn't want Islam to rule in Egypt, and that's all to the good in terms of human rights and in terms of violence against non-Muslims and so on. But it's not really an Islamic point of view. Understood. Um, I know this is not directly related to Islam, but uh, it is related to foreign policy, something that you've become something of an expert in over the last few decades as well. Uh, We learned yesterday the uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100, probably the uh, best known until yesterday living American diplomat, also probably one of the most controversial. What's your view of Henry Kissinger? legacy? Well, I have to say, I'm sorry, you know, they say don't speak ill of the dead and so on, but I'm not a not an admirer of Henry Kissinger, never have been. 
Henry Kissinger, for one thing, is one of the principal architects of the still-in-place policy of ignoring Islam when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, the paradox about that is that if you read the writings of or the statements of Hamas, as well as Palestinian Islamic Jihad and all the other jihad groups that are fighting against Israel, and you read the statements even of the Palestinian Authority, the Mm. alleged moderates, they're all about Islam. And they speak from beginning to end about the conflict in Islamic terms. And they don't speak about it in any other terms than Islamic. And yet the aspect of Islam in its relationship to the conflict has been unanimously and universally ignored and dismissed by every last Western analyst who has studied the issue. And that is largely due to Henry Kissinger's influence. Uh, You mentioned the Israel-Hamas situation, and now there's talk of uh, extending this truce, possibly. Uh, How do you see this situation playing out? Obviously, uh, there's been a lot of death and a lot of destruction. There have been calls for an extended ceasefire. There's some concerns about the hostages. Give me your your hope, uh, your hope for a best-case scenario going forward, and tell me what you think the more realistic scenario might be. The best-case scenario would be that Israel would be free to do what it said it was going to do, which was destroy Hamas altogether. Now, destroying Hamas altogether is not going to end the jihad. Other jihad groups will arise. There will be jihad as long as there are people who believe in Islam and the Quran and Muhammad. But at the same time, it would be a massive setback for the jihad in general if Hamas were defeated. And the thing is, though, that the chief obstacle to defeating and destroying Hamas that Israel faces is that is exactly the people who we think of as think of as the principal allies of the Israelis. And that's the people in Washington, the Biden administration. They don't want Hamas destroyed. They want to restore the status quo ante, the status quo before the massacre of October 7th. And the problem with that is it's just going to end up getting more innocent people killed. It's a difficult thing. It's tough. It's understandable why they want Israel to stop and they want to make some kind of peace. But that's only just kicking the can down the road. It's only going to lead to this a kind of massacre that we saw on October 7th happening yet again. And so if we want to put an end to this once and for all, or at least for a considerable period into the future, then then Israel has to be given a free hand. But what's much more likely is that we're going to get, uh, as soon as the fighting resumes, as if it does at all, then there will be new calls for a ceasefire. And eventually the Biden regime will pressure Israel, which, of course, doesn't want to end up being completely isolated on the world stage. And so it can't cross the United States, can't defy the United States. And as a result, it will ultimately stop short of the goal and a new peace will prevail for a while until the rockets 
and the massacres start again. For the last 16, 17 years or so, a lot of folks have viewed Fatah as a more moderate alternative to Hamas and a uh, kind of a counterbalance among the Palestinians to a more radical ideology. There was an article in either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times last weekend showing that a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank view Abbas as someone that has just been doing Israel's bidding, somebody that has been... uh, uh, handpicked by Israel on uh, to sit on sort of a fake crown. Do you view Fatah as a potential as a part of a potential future moderate Palestinian authority? Is Fatah truly a bulwark against Hamas? No, not in the slightest degree. Uh, the difference between Hamas and Fatah is the difference between people who want to get something done fast and people who are more patient. But that's all. They have the same goal. They both want Israel completely destroyed. The idea coming out of Washington that we're going to have two states living side by side in peace, the total pipe dream, it'll never happen. And it'll never happen because of the maximalism of the jihad ideology. The jihad is uh, total, and it calls for the complete destruction of Israel because it's based on the idea that that land belongs to Islam. And so if they establish a state and recognize Israel, which is unlikely ever to happen to begin with, it's only a stepping stone, and there will be more jihad attacks, probably from that new state, in order to ultimately bring about the goal of destroying Israel. Fatah is willing to negotiate and make deals and have agreements and so on, and Hamas is not. And so that's what I mean by saying that Hamas is impatient and Fatah is patient. But they both ultimately are working for the same thing. I could talk to you for a whole hour just about current events. And um, my only regret is it's been so long since we've spoken. I want to ask you about these folks disrupting the Christmas tree lighting. I want to ask you about the recent elections in the Netherlands. But you're just going to have to come back uh, to chat about that sometime soon. Your book, Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization, Really interesting, really fascinating. And as I said uh, when I was introducing you, I was embarrassed how little I knew about the Byzantine Empire. Were you always interested in the Byzantine Empire? If not, what prompted you to study this aspect of uh, civilization? Yeah, I can tell you, Frank, this is a book that I've wanted to write for a number of years. Uh, My family is actually from that part of the world. So uh, you go back far enough in my ancestry, and you have people who lived in the Byzantine Empire, and uh, this was always a part of history that captured my imagination. And I always thought that, yeah, Americans, I think, don't know enough about how much it influenced our own country. People don't know, for example, that the Emperor Justinian, the greatest of the Byzantine emperors, he actually uh, made a code, a law, a legal code that... John Adams and Thomas Jefferson studied when they were uh, setting up the laws of the United States and formulating the Constitution and so on. And that's just one of many, many aspects in which our own lives have been affected by the Byzantines. And I think nowadays when there's such ignorance of history, when we see these barbarians out there marching for Hamas and they have no idea what they're fronting for, uh, we need to start to recover a sense of our own heritage 
and our own culture. And so, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. When we think of the uh, roots of Western civilization, you even write this early on in the book in uh, either chapter one or the introduction, which is uh, very creatively titled, Not the Empire You Want, But the Empire You Need. As a Batman fan, I appreciated the the reference. <laughs> you write that when we think of the West, we often think of Athens. We think of Rome, maybe Jerusalem. We don't necessarily think of the Byzantine Empire as being um, so integral to Western civilization. For people that uh, don't use the term Byzantine on a regular basis, remind us, who were the Byzantines? Where did they rule? When did they rule? Well, for one thing, the Byzantines were the Romans. A lot of people are aware that the Byzantine Empire is also called the Eastern Roman Empire. Fewer people are aware that the Byzantines never called themselves Byzantines or Eastern Romans. They were the Romans. The Roman Empire of Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, all that that we people may remember from school and that is supposed to have fallen in 476, act, the year 476. Actually, what happened was they had expanded out east and established a second capital in Constantinople, the city that is now Istanbul, the capital, the, not the capital, but the largest city in Turkey. And... Uh, in Constantinople, the emperors continued to reign, and even when they lost Rome, they still figured, well, you know, they just as if, if Americans lost Washington, they would still be Americans. And so the Romans continued to call themselves Romans, and the Roman Empire continued, or known as the Byzantine Empire today, until the year 1453. And a lot of people, you know, know that... Uh, our own modes of thinking, philosophically, politically, theologically, that they come from originally from the ancient Greeks. The lesser known is the fact that that literature had been completely lost, almost completely lost. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, there were only two books of Plato that were known and circulating in Western Europe when scholars from the Byzantine Empire in the 15th century traveled to Italy, and they started giving talks about Plato, introducing all this thought into Western Europe, that was the beginning of the Renaissance. And so it has a lot to do with our own history, and even our own society is a free society that respects the freedom of conscience and the dignity of the human person. These ideas come to us from the Byzantine Empire. Given that that's the case, given that so much of Western civilization has its roots in the Byzantine Empire and so much of American uh, society and all the other aspects that you mentioned are inspired by uh, the Byzantine culture, why does no one talk about them? I don't get the sense that they have the same place in global studies classes in high schools around the country that the ancient Greeks do, the ancient Romans. Why is that? Well, I think that in part it's a uh, matter of PR that you have the Ottoman Empire that supplanted, that conquered Byzantium, conquered the Byzantine Empire, and that has been the uh, subject of a great deal of study because uh, there was this backlash against alleged Islamophobia after 9-11, and people wanting to speak about the contributions of Islam to the West, and so there was a great deal about the Ottomans. And uh, meanwhile, Plato and Aristotle and those guys, they uh, are indeed at the foundation of our culture, and it came to be taken for granted that that was so 
while people generally forgot how it was that we came to know them. And so it's just, uh, you know, circumstances as things go by, uh, I think that people um, started to think of the Byzantines in a negative way, primarily because of Islamic apologetics in our own day. I've read so many people saying, you know, when the Arabs came out of Arabia in the 7th century and started conquering the lands of the Byzantine Empire in the Middle East, they were welcomed as liberators because the Byzantines were so oppressive. Total historical myth. But that kind of thing is what people know generally if they know anything about the Byzantine Empire. And it's really just part of Islamic public relations post 9-11. So I wanted to set the record straight to, to a tremendous degree in things like that. So what do we know about the Byzantine cultures and the Byzantine empires clashes with Islam? I mean, this was not ancient history for them. The, the, Muhammad wrote a letter to the Byzantine emperor. What was the nature of Muhammad's uh, interactions with the Byzantine empire? Well, that is all part. That's all in uh Islamic literature from a little bit later, so it's not certain that it actually happened, but the story is that Muhammad wrote to Heraclius, the the Byzantine emperor, inviting him to convert to Islam, that Heraclius refused. Muhammad died shortly thereafter, and the Arabs poured out of Arabia, started conquering the territories in the area right next to there, which is uh, the Middle East, the Levant, the uh, areas, the regions of North Africa, they were all Byzantine. And this is what is known today as the heart of the Islamic world. So this was a tremendous blow to the Byzantine Empire at that time. It was able to stabilize and regain some of that territory and hold the line, actually fighting a series of defensive wars against the jihadis for fully 800 years. And if they had not been there, then the jihadis would have come to Europe pretty much unopposed. And there would be, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. There would, there would be no European culture or Western civilization as we know it. No idea of uh, these things that I mentioned before, the equality of rights of all people, the freedom of speech. So many things would have been completely obliterated in Europe and thus never would have come to North America. I know you mentioned that they were supplanted by the Ottoman Empire, but when the Byzantine Empire ultimately fell in 1453, why, how and why did it fall? Are there lessons that can be learned by the falling, the decline and the fall of the Byzantine Empire by, say, the United States? What can we learn from the decline of the Byzantine Empire? Well, I can say the primary lesson is that there needs to be a recognition of the threat among all those who are threatened and unity among them. Now that ought to be an elementary point, but look at think look about at the nations that are today threatened by jihad violence. They're not united, they're not working together. They don't recognize jihad as a common threat that is dangers all of them. This is not something that's on their radar. And it was the same thing with the Byzantines, even though the Byzantines were fighting against the jihadis for 800 years. And in Western Europe, after a few hundred of those years, they sent crusaders to try to beat back the jihadis to some degree. The uh, West was at odds with the Byzantines for hundreds of years 
because of the split in the Church between what we know of today as the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and consequently, they didn't want to help unless the Byzantine Empire would agree to accept the Pope and become Catholic, and they didn't want to do that. And so the infighting in the West gave the jihadis an opportunity. If they had been able to come to some kind of an accord that would have enabled them to work together, then the Byzantine Empire may never have fallen. could still be there. We're going to have to end it there. Robert Spencer, you can check out his website, Jihad Watch, uh, he, where he is the director. A lot of interesting analysis and information. It's uh, at uh, jihadwatch.com, uh, or excuse me, jihadwatch.org. And you can also check out the new book, Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilizations. Robert, I uh, hope we could talk again. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Radio Gaga, this is, um, I don't know, uh, when Carmine was younger, uh, this is what uh, what I would ask him about what was on the radio, this is what he would sort of say, Radio Gaga. But uh, these days he's getting a little more sophisticated. You know, he's two years old now, he's starting to master his numbers, starting to get the hang of the old alphabet, although again, much like his numbers, it is somewhat similar to Apollonia doing the days of the week. In The Godfather. And he actually does think every day is Monday. And and I can't tell whether he thinks every day is Monday or whether he says it in spite of us saying what day it is. Here was his attempt at the uh, alphabet yesterday.
Now that's not bad. Not bad. For two years old? He's got the first part of it down. He just needs to work on the rest. He'll get there. I'm hopeful. Until next hour, keep asking questions.